We're turning to that chapter that we read together from 1 John to 1 John and chapter 3. 1 John and chapter 3. Just going to take a verse from this chapter. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Amen. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's help this morning. Now, Father, we thank thee that... We are able to open the scriptures. We thank the Lord for the many precious jewels uh, which we find in the word of God. In all of the richness of the gold of scripture, we come across the diamonds, Lord, which stand, it seems, almost on their own. And Father, we thank thee that those things are often our comforts, often our instructors. We pray, Lord, that thou would speak to us this day from thy word. Bless us now, then, we ask and continue with us and be exalted and glorified, we pray, in each of our minds, in each of our estimations, in each of our understandings, Lord, that we might indeed come before thee to worship thee in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in verse uh, verse 5 is the verse that I want to take uh, this morning, and that is, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. He was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. It's a strange portion of scripture this because we know that we continue in sin and yet uh, John is saying to us he that committeth sin transgresseth also the law and then he says whosoever abideth in him sinneth not whosoever sinneth hath not seen him and neither known him and yet there is not a, a, a person in all the world even the Lord's people who has not sinned we think of David who is accounted a man after God's own heart and surely he sinned uh, we know that he sinned in Uh, that adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, We know that he sinned in many other ways. We've been looking at his life for a long time now. We've seen many errors which he made and sins against the Lord. So what does it mean uh, that he abideth in him, sinneth not? Well, the word sinneth is in uh, in a continual tense. So what it is really saying is that he that continues in sin uh, just says that they are a Christian, says that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, It makes no difference to their lives whatsoever. There is no seeking after righteousness. There is no desire to be without sin. There is no desire to honor him and to walk with him, to love our brother even though uh, we might be hated of the world. 
that if there is no difference in us, then we have not seen him, neither known him. When the Lord Jesus Christ manifests himself to us, then there is a change in our lives. There is a difference in our attitudes. There is a repentance. We've often uh, said that word. I don't know if you've learned the Greek word yet, because I've said it so often, so often but metanoio is a word which means to change the mind, to change the mind. And meeting with Christ changes our mind. And here, where we see in this verse, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him no sin, there is, uh, there is no sin. The, the, there is this manifestation, not just a manifestation to the world, but a manifestation to us as individuals. He has manifested himself to us. He has revealed himself to us. That's not the aspect I want to look at today, but I want to look at the actual manifestation of Christ in the world uh, but we know that there is a personal manifestation of Christ to every believer. So I want to consider this under three heads. First of all, the malaise of sin. Sometimes people criticize me for the big words I use, so uh, I try to uh, uh, explain them if I, if I uh, note to do so. So the malaise of sin is the problem, the trouble, the, uh, the, uh, the difficulties, the, the sickness of sin. The malaise of sin. Secondly, the manifestation of the Son, as we have it here. So we have, he was manifested to take away our sins. So the first point really is on our sins. The second, the manifestation of Christ. And then thirdly, the marvel of the sin bearer, because he was manifested to take away our sins. But we're going to look at this in this order. So first of all, the malaise of sin, this sickness of sin. When we think about sin, well, we might ask the question, well, what is sin? The world certainly asks that question, what is sin? We don't believe in sin. Uh, and there are all kinds of uh, aspects of what the world believes concerning what sin is and whether they are sinners. And you ask people if they consider themselves to be sinners and they say, no, I'm not a sinner. Uh, there are people much worse than me. Well, they might be, but that doesn't mean that you're not a sinner too. And so what is sin? Well, uh, we could say, first of all, the classes uh, perhaps of sin what kinds of sins are they what how can we bring them together and list them and and put them under different sections perhaps we we like to do that we like to pigeonhole things don't we and and to have them in in some kind of an order and so the classes of sin first of all sin itself what is sin well sin is a is a shortfall it's coming short of the glory of god sin is when we don't do what god has told us to do sin is when we fail in what we are given and even from the world's point of view if your teacher perhaps in class uh, says to you you need to do this and it's not done they will that will be considered a failure that will be considered not using this word but nevertheless a sin and, and we think of the uh, the tax man perhaps maybe the highest uh, uh, of the illustrations we might use he says get your taxes in before the 31st of january and get them paid, otherwise you'll pay fines. And if you do fall short, then you pay fines. And so uh, that is considered, therefore, this is a, it's a shortfall. It's coming short of what is required. Secondly, transgression. The Bible speaks about transgression. Well, transgression is the opposite. Transgression is overstepping the mark. It is where we have said you can do this, but you can't do that. 
And so well, we might transgress quite often. If you're a driver, you might, dri- might transgress often the, uh, the speed limit, particularly now, as many of them are 20 miles an hour, which seems interminably slow. Uh, and uh, we might seek to push that 20 miles an hour up a little bit, uh, and sometimes people push it up far too far, and sometimes they get caught. Uh, but that is another uh, aspect of the classes of sin. So doing what you're not supposed to do. And of course, uh, that, that's the time when you also get in trouble in school, uh, and you can also get in t- trouble with the tax man, can't you, uh, if you're not paying your taxes, uh, and uh, you are transgressing the law in that way Uh, we are presumptuous in that way in 2 peter 2 10 we read but chiefly then that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government presumptuous are they self-willed they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities thirdly then the third class we might say of this malaise of sin is iniquity iniquity what is iniquity well iniquity is a perverseness it is um, twisting what is allowed and, and saying, well, I'm not allowed to do this, but maybe I'll get away with it this way. If and lots of people do this, of course, and if we use the illustration of the tax man of, as, again, we might say, well, you can get a, a clever accountant and he'll be able to find ways of getting around the taxes that you have to pay. And some people are very good at that, of course, and uh, we think of the the rich in particular are very good at not paying the taxes which they which are due uh, they find ways of getting around taxes there used to be this um keeping stuff in offshore accounts and so on so that they didn't have to pay their taxes so that is iniquity a perversity in fact the scripture speaks of it in this way uh, that the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth god a service that's iniquity uh, they are taking the scriptures and they are twisting them to become the actual enemies of God. And then for, uh, fourthly, perhaps comes under this, this uh, issue of iniquity, is guile, which is dishonesty. Uh, we, we, it's a corruption of, of, the, of the truth. Uh, it is not speaking the whole truth. I often wonder in court if you were uh, being questioned and... This happens, it seems, quite often where the, the um, prosecutor might say to you, uh, is this true, yes or no? Where his question is a false dichotomy because you're not allowed to explain it. I often wonder if you stopped there and you said to the judge, judge, I swore that I would tell the whole truth, not just the bits that the prosecutor wants. And I need to be able to explain what my answer is so that I can tell the whole truth. That is what is required of me here. I wonder what the judge would say in that situation. I've often wondered that, that very question. So guile is a dishonesty. Uh, those who corrupt the word of God. And uh, Paul says that he, uh, he is not as one of those. So the malaise of sin. These kinds of sins. A shortfall. Not doing what we're supposed to do. Doing what we're not supposed to do. Twisting things so that we can try and get away with what we're, what we're uh, our f- f- shortfall or, or transgression. And guile. This kind of dishonesty where we keep things under the surface so nobody knows. Secondly, the consciousness of sin. You see, even people who don't believe in God are still conscious of sin. 
Now, they make up their own sins, of course, and in this woke world in which we live in these days, it is very evident that there are many who think that there are sins that we commit. People are cancelled. We're in what's been termed a cancel culture because they don't agree with somebody else. And those things are a recognition of the fact of sin. Uh, because sin is the transgression of the law. And if the law is uh, there made by a group of people and they decide what the law is and you disagree with it, then you've transgressed the law and that's what sin is. Uh, you see, in this day and age, because men don't believe in God, there needs to be another lawgiver. And if there is no God, then man is the lawgiver. And what man is the lawgiver? If we can get enough of a congregation of people together uh, to say this is right or that is right, that becomes the law. And this is often discussed and disputed even in the world. Well, what, what is law? Why are we not allowed to do this or not allowed to do that? It can change. It can be a right to have slaves in one country and wrong to have slaves in another country. It can be right to put someone to death in one country and wrong to put them in to, de to death in another country. just depends what people come together and say or those who are in authority, whatever they say. So there is always a law. There will always be law. But whether those laws are just laws, whether they are right laws, is a matter of opinion. And that's where we are left. But there is a consciousness of sin. Nevertheless, every man knows that there are things which are right and there are things which are wrong, whatever those things may be. And then there is a context of sin. The context of sin. Well, the context of sin is that very thing. Is sin what man says sin is? Or is sin what God says sin is? Who decides what is sin? Who decides what is right? And why do they decide? What gives them the right to decide? Well, when we come to man, if there's no man that is better than any other man, uh, we come to uh, the, all of humanity and we gather them together, we find that there is none righteous, not, not, no, not one. So who has the right to decide what is right and what is wrong? Well, the only person really that we could say, even hypothetically, who could say what is right and what is wrong would be a creator, whoever made this world or created this world or as some would like to think maybe the universe there's some kind of a, a consciousness in the universe but the fact is that God created us and God is the only one who has the right to decide what is right and what is wrong because he is not like us because he is perfect because he is all-powerful because he is eternal because he cannot be brought under the judgment of any so god that's the context of sin and that is the context of sin here of course john is just taking this for granted and he says whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law for sin is the transgression of the law sin is not doing what the law says or doing what the law says don't do and then finally the curse of sin well, the law is the curse. The law is the curse because sin dwells in us. Therefore, we always sin. We always break the law. And therefore, because the curse of the law is death, 
That is the curse, death. And we see it, of course, all around us. Death is everywhere. Death comes to us all. Death is experienced by us all, either in someone else or in ourselves. But death is the absolute certainty that sin exists, for the wages of sin is death. Secondly, then, we see the manifestation of the Son here, because it says he was manifested to take away our sins. Now, it's not just a manifested to keep the law, but to take away our sins. And that was necessary, of course, because although Jesus himself kept the law and never failed and never came short, we all did. And we all do. And all the world is in the same situation. Therefore, this manifestation of the Son is that he should come and take away our sins. The sins need to be removed. There is no way that we can be accounted worthy of attaining the, the blessedness or the well done of God unless our sins are removed. We can never be said to have done well if we are sinners. Therefore, it is that Jesus came into the world to die for us. When we think about the manifestation of the Son, this is an interesting word, isn't it? Manifestation. And a manifestation is really the revealing of something that was already there. When something is manifested, it is set before us. It's already there, but we haven't seen it. And of course, that happens in all kinds of things in life. There, there can be um, perhaps uh, clues which are set before us. You think of a, uh, perhaps a police show, uh, and you're, you're watching them, and they've laid down clues all the way through the, the, through, uh, the show, and then coming up towards the end, the clues begin to be revealed. If you're really, really clever, you may have seen some of them. Uh, but the clever writer, of course, <clears throat> sets the clues in such a way that they are very hard to discover. But when they are manifested, all of a sudden we understand, ah, now I see what happened there. Now I see why that person came. That's why, I, why that happened. And so there is a manifestation. So when we think about the manifestation of the sun, we're thinking about the being of the sun, first of all, and the fact that the sun, the manifestation of the sun, he was manifested to take away our sins. And the Son, in his being, is eternal. The eternal Son of God. Some dispute this. Some say, well, Christ cannot be eternal, God, or rather the Son of God cannot be eternal, because God is one. Muslims say, God is one. Jehovah's Witnesses say, God is one. There is no trinity, God is one. The Jews say, God is one. There is no trinity, God is one. But Jesus Christ, whatever way you look at it, God recognizes from eternity because God is eternal and there is nothing new that comes to God's mind. God knows all things. There is no new revelation. There is no new ideas. There are no new ways of doing things. Then God must have known the Son for eternity because he speaks and he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and I have always known him. And if he has always known him, then he has always existed in the mind of God, in the person of God, and in the communion of God. 
there has always been a communion between the Father and the Son. In Colossians 1.17 we read, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. It, it cannot be that God does not know, the Father does not know the Son. The Son is eternal. We cannot perhaps comprehend the Trinity, one God in three persons, but we cannot deny that that is what the Bible teaches and that is what must actually be. Secondly, in the manifestation of the Son, of course, his birth it is his birth. We're thinking about Christmas at the moment, and Christmas is the re- recognition of his birth. I was talking to a young Muslim man uh, some uh, months ago, uh, and he was saying to me, well, why do you have Christmas? Because uh, Jesus wasn't born at Christmas. And I said to him, well, it's a bit like the Queen's birthday. Uh, the Queen's birthday is on a certain day, but it's not on her birthday. It's a commemorative uh, birthday. So she has two birthdays, which is quite nice. In fact, if she's the Lord's, and many people think that she does know the Lord, then she has three birthdays, because she's been born again as well. So she's doing better than all of us. But she anyway has two birthdays. The day she was actually born is remembered on that anniversary, and then there's an official birthday. And I said to him, really, what Christmas is, because we don't know when Jesus was born, and we can't say uh, what day that was, and therefore we cannot remember it on that day, is we have an official birthday. Because Jesus was born, you can agree with that. And of course the Muslim would say, yes, we believe that Jesus was born, and they would say, peace be upon him. But Jesus, therefore, uh, we remember just the fact that he was born. Muhammad's birth is remembered. Jesus' birth is remembered. But we don't know when Jesus was born, so we keep that uh, day uh, as Christmas Day. But his birth, of course, is that manifestation to the world. All of a sudden, the Son of God is in the midst of us, born just like we are. With all of the pain, with all of the blood, with all of the, uh, of the complications. Uh, in fact, more, because he was born in a, in a stable. And it, with all of that trouble, with all of that angst, with all of that fear, which no doubt uh, Mary would have, su- would have suffered, and perhaps Joseph even more so. And the baby is born. And so here is the manifestation of the son. But the son doesn't begin in Christ. The son has been from the beginning. The Son has always been in the Father, with the Father. But he is born, the manifestation of the Son. And this is what John is making mention of here. He was manifested to take away our sins. He came into this world to take away our sins. Couldn't do it from heaven. Needed to be one of us in order to take away our sins. He needed to be man so he could take man's sins. And so he is manifested in his birth which is what we remember at this time. And then, of course, his blessedness. Because we read here uh, in this very verse, he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. His blessedness. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And Christ is blessed in all of the way, he, he, he is tempted at all points like as we are. And so he is tempted to fall short of the glory of God. But he is able to say, 
to the, to the Father in John 17, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And upon the cross, it is finished. So Christ has no sin then. He has not fallen short of the glory of God. But he prays in that high priestly prayer that he might have the glory which he, uh, which he shared with the Father before the world was. He has not fallen short of the glory of God. He has not transgressed either. He has not, he has not overstepped the mark. He has not required or, or claimed something which is not his right to claim. And when you think about it, he doesn't come anywhere near it because he calls himself the Son of Man. And many will point to the scriptures and they will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He doesn't overstep the mark. And, of course, Jesus is, is, in, a, is in a very interesting situation because although he is God, but he is also man. He says that the Father is greater than I. Perhaps he is referring to the fact that he has taken upon himself flesh. And so there is a weakness in the fact that he is a man and can die. This flesh can cease. But he is blessed. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows all of the temptations or uh, all the circumstances of life. I've spoken on temptations before. Temptations really rise in our hearts. But the circumstances of life are around us all and they all were set before Jesus and every suggestion was given to him that he might fall short or that he might transgress. But he is blessed. The manifestation of the Son is one who does not sin. He does not sin. There is no sin in Christ. And then finally, we consider the marvel of the sin bearer. The marvel of the sin bearer. He was manifested to take away our sins. I think that we have to see here in the taking away of our sins uh, that old uh, rite in the Jewish teachings of the day when the scapegoat was taken, the Day of Atonement. And here the, the priest, the high priest, would put his hands upon the head of the scapegoat and he would pray all, all the sins of the people upon that scapegoat. And there were two goats. One died and was sacrificed and belonged to God. The other was driven away out into the wilderness. A goat of separation. A goat which took away the sins of the people in, in a, a visual way. It was the sins of the people were laid upon it. And it was driven from the midst. In Leviticus 16 then we read of this. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats. One lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat <clears throat> shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him, to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now there are some who say, well, Jesus was the goat, if you like, who was given as a sacrifice on the cross. And that Satan was the other goat who bore the sins and went out into the wilderness. The Seventh-day Adventists teach this. But here, we see here the, the, the fact is that Christ is both the goat which is given in sacrifice and the scapegoat who takes away our sins. <clears throat> this is what John says. He was manifested to take away our sins. 
Christ is both of these. But of course he can't be manifested in a goat. And therefore two goats are necessary just to show what it was that Christ did upon the cross. But the marvel of the sin bearer is that he parts us from our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. We ask uh, three questions then. First of all, the capacity of Christ. Uh, What sins can he bear? Well, he can bear the sins of all of his people. But because he is infinite, because he is eternal, because he is without sin, he could bear the sins of every man. That is possible. But it is not God's purpose that every man should be saved. Therefore, we can say that Christ bears the sins of his people. Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Hebrews 7, 25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The capacity of Christ then, although is infinite, <clears throat> uh, pertains to those who the Father has given to him, it pertains to those who come to him, it pertains to those who call upon him, it pertains to those who believe in him. We believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. Now, he, the Lord is able to save to the uttermost you and me and any per- person who comes and trusts in him there is no limit to the power of god some have a problem with an issue which is called the limited atonement they say well we don't believe in a limited atonement we don't believe that god has limited those who can who can be saved well we suppose we could agree to a certain extent and say well he hasn't limited those who could be saved But in actual fact, it's those who say that it's not God who makes the decision, but it is man that makes the decision who limits the atonement. Because therefore, no one chooses God. There is none that seeketh after God, no, not one. So man then limits the atonement. Every person limits the atonement. Which gives man the power over God. If we say that we can choose God then we have given man the power to refuse God. We have more authority than he has. Is that true? Can that be true? The capacity of Christ is to save all that the Father giveth him. Then we can ask the question, well, what was the cost to Christ? It tells us this, that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's the cost to Christ was death that he would die upon the cross that he would die in such a symbolic way that he would die under the hands of sinners that he would die in front of sinners and in two of those things we can say well first of all mankind refuses righteousness and slays the righteous one on the other hand Christ dying on the cross says This is what you deserve. This is death. And you are looking upon me. And you are condemning me. And therefore you are condemning yourselves. 
because of all the people of the world, I am the most righteous, and you are all less righteous, and yet you're crucifying me. So therefore, you have already judged yourselves and said you are worthy of death. And of course, death is the wages of sin. Jesus says, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The cost to Christ is his life. And he dies that we might be saved. And then the claims of Christ. What are the claims of Christ? First of all, the claim to purity. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And Jesus asked the people, what sin have you found in me? And they could not answer him anything. They had to make something up. They had to, in actual fact, fall into iniquity and guile and say, well, you called yourself the son of God and therefore, but he was the son of God. So they were wrong. Well, they weren't wrong. He did call himself the son of God. They were wrong in thinking that he wasn't the son of God. But the error was theirs, not his. But Christ is pure. Christ is perfect. In him is no sin. This is the claim which Christ makes. And of course, this claim is not just a claim before us. It's a claim before God that he is without sin. And the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then, secondly, the claims of Christ, the claim of propitiation. Another word which is hard, uh, perhaps not one which is used an awful lot of these days. But propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God and make us acceptable in God's sight. To be uh, propitious is to be acceptable in the sight or looked upon with favor. So that someone looks upon you now and they think, well... I, I thought that that person uh, wasn't very nice, but it seems that they are much better than I ever knew. And this can often happen, can't it? We can see people, perhaps on television, and then all of a sudden a revelation is made about them. That they have given thousands or millions uh, away to some charity. That they have helped the homeless. That they have done all kinds of good things in this world. And you think, well, my, my attitude toward them has changed completely. I really did not know that they were such a nice person. I, I just expected them to be like everyone else. That is propitiation. Uh, but of course, with, with us, because we are sinners, because God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon sin, therefore our sin needs to be taken away so that we can be propitious before God and God will look upon us and say, You are righteous. You were never righteous. But you are righteous. Why are we righteous? Because Christ has given us his righteousness. And then thirdly, the claims of Christ is the claim of possession. In Isaiah 43 and verse 1 we read, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. I have redeemed thee, I purchased thee, I bought thee. You are mine, the claim of possession. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19, this is a wonderful verse, I love this verse. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them 
that are his. Are you his this morning? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him? Who pays the price. He takes away our sin. Casts it as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Christ who makes the claim of purity. Which none of us can make. Makes the claim of propitiation. In bearing away our sins. That God may look upon us with kindness. He makes the claim of possession. These are mine when I make up my jewels. Are you his? Is he yours? Oh, that the Lord would bless these considerations to our hearts and save souls that we might trust in Christ who is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God through him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would bless with understanding all those who hear this message that you would save souls Lord that you would give understanding to those who have come to thee for salvation that they might understand that the salvation of God through Jesus Christ is full complete and free for he hath paid the price in Jesus name we pray Amen